Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of the channel. In his new book, Broke and Patriotic, Why Poor Americans Love Their Country, published by Stanford University Press in 2018, Professor Francesco Duina asks why impoverished Americans espouse such great and abiding love for their country, even as they suffer and struggle to get by. By many standards, America's poor are objectively less well-off than the poorest members of most other developed countries. They work longer hours, have lower chances of upward mobility, and experience some of the largest wealth and income gaps relative to the rich. Yet they espouse greater levels of patriotism than poor people nearly anywhere else. To understand this puzzle, Duena talked to poor Americans themselves in laundromats, homeless shelters, bus stations, public libraries, senior centers, and fast food restaurants. Ultimately, he identified three overarching narratives among those he spoke with, centered around hope, prosperity, and freedom. He presents compelling statistics alongside extended interview excerpts to explain not only what poor Americans think, but why what they think matters, not just for scholars, but for the country and its future. I'm thrilled to be talking today with Dr. Francesco Duina, author of Broke and Patriotic, Why Poor Americans Love Their Country, published by Stanford University Press in 2018. Dr. Duina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, Before we talk about the book, can you begin by telling us a bit about yourself? Yes, I'm a professor at uh, Bates College in Maine of uh, sociology, and I also teach in the European Studies program, and I specialize in uh, what we call political and economic sociology, mostly questions about national identity, nation state, and uh, globalization. That's great. Um, now, let, let's talk about Broke and Patriotic, which I really enjoyed reading. Um, how did you get the initial idea for this book? Well, the original idea was uh, long in coming, I think. I was, you know, I've been in this country for over 35 years. I'm originally from Italy. And uh, throughout my time here, I noticed over many years and decades the, the re- relatively unique display of patriotism that one encounters just traveling around the country and seeing how people live and what they display on their T-shirts or their yard, front yards and schools and how I have children here and they recite the Pledge of Allegiance, for instance, and every morning in school. And that's the source displays national anthems at sports events. And um, as the inequality in this country has increased over time, and as obviously people have been hit very hard by the crisis of 07, 08, you know, I, I kept wondering whether this patriotic fervor would decrease somehow. And uh, it occurred to me that, in fact, if anything, it seemed to, to be stronger, uh, at least certainly very strong, but certainly I, I felt stronger. Uh, over time. And so, especially among the, the poor, uh, if, you can, if you can call them that way, and the ones who are struggling economically. And, and for that reason, a, a sort of a puzzle occurred to me as to, you know, why is it the case? Why are they so, you know, apparently so in love with their country when in fact they've been struggling for so much? And for them, at least, the American dream does not seem to be materializing. So, that was a question that I had, and it was constantly, um, you know, constantly popped into my head by traveling around the country, seeing flags around, you know, areas that were very poor, homes that looked to be pretty destitute, and people who were struggling. So I, I thought, you know, I should just, should just be traveling around the country and ask precisely those questions to the people that I meet. So that's, that's kind of the genesis of the book. There is another book that I wrote a little while ago on competition in America, and, um, so there was a sort of predecessor in my mind, and the, the intensity with which in the United States we compete and 
structure our lives around competition. So that's kind of the genesis of the book. That's great. Um, so when you decided to, to go around and talk to people, what exactly did your research for the book entail? Can you tell us what that looked like? Yeah. So what I did was to identify using data from the General Social Survey, which is a major survey that sociologists and others use. It's run out of the University of Chicago um, by an semi-independent organization. And I used that data uh, to identify effectively areas of the country where uh, patriotism is really high, and especially among segments of the population that are poor or, you know, poor as defined by U.S. government you know, numbers and figures. And then uh, within, uh, so that I kind of identified what I call the hotbed of patriotism among the poor. And then decided that within those, I would use some census data and other metrics to identify especially poor areas where the patriotism was especially high. And that led me to two areas of the country. One was Montana and one was Alabama. And within that, rural and urban areas. And uh, to select zip codes effectively, where I would go and spend time there and meet people. And eventually, through a process of screening, I would set up what were these long interviews with over 60 respondents that varied by, as you can imagine, race and gender and, and uh, other things. Uh, definitely not by class, because I picked the ones that were, in fact, very low on the economic bracket uh, figures. And then I would converse with them and eventually set up official interviews, you know, uh, with, you know, they would sign papers and so on and so forth, and I would record them. And then eventually I came out of uh, that research process with about uh, about a thousand pages worth of transcribed interviews, which served as the core material for the book. So they were basically interview-based, it's an interview-based research project. So you're talking about people who exhibit high levels of levels of patriotism. How do you define patriotism for the purposes of your book? Yeah, that is that is a very good question, and I define it in a way that is not necessarily standard in the literature. I probably should have called it nationalism, uh, but I use the word patriotism because it's a little bit more intuitive, and I and I think that uh, just for for the purposes of a book, I think patriotic sounds better than nationalistic. Um, but basically, the definition that I used is not only an appreciation for one's country, um, but a but a sense or a belief that the country is is great is. Excellent, and in fact, is relatively or comparatively superior to other countries. So it's not only thinking that the United States is a great country, but it's the best country. It's, it's a better country than other countries on earth. There's something special about the United States. Typically, that's sort of the language of nationalism. But again, as I said, for the purposes of this book, I call it patriotism. So that's kind of how I defined it. And that's how I screened participants, and that's how all the initial data analysis to identify areas of the country where I would go, that's, that's the definition I use, and therefore I use proxy questions to identify them through the survey, general social survey, uh, using proxy questions for those sentiments. Okay. And, and what sort of questions did you ask the people that you interviewed? Yeah, well, at the beginning, of course, in the initial process of screening people, because what I ended up doing was you know, I didn't have, um, I did try to set up interviews ahead of my arrival in Montana and Alabama, but that only worked partly in Alabama where I had the, uh, I had flyers set up and people actually called me or contacted me via libraries and homeless shelters ahead of time. In Montana, I had those flyers and other things, but no one contacted me. So most of, most of the initial screening was done on site. I would uh, spend time at laundromats, bus stations, uh, maybe uh, uh, low-end restaurants near, say, um, uh, homeless shelters or used clothing stores and things like that. And I would just strike up, strike up conversations with people. Uh, and then I would take, you know, the 
opportunity to ask some questions. Maybe if there was a show on TV, they showed the American flag, or they themselves were displaying American flags, or an eagle on the T-shirt, or something like that. I would ask sort of generic questions, and then once I ascertained that they were sort of the right group with the right sentiment, I would then, you know, ask them a, a number of questions. And the question, the structure, the survey was a semi-structured survey, which began uh, with basic demographic, personal information, race, gender, and so on and so forth, and then uh, eventually entered into questions about patriotism, love of country, why do you love the country, what does the country mean to you. I would ask them to visualize, you know, images and ask them what are the first three images that come to mind when you see the American, if you can think of the American flag. Or I would ask them to, you know, um, mention attributes that come to mind when thinking about the United States. And then as the interview progressed, if I sensed that there were interesting personal stories or anecdotes or venues into their, into their thinking, I would probe further, especially if I sensed that they were holding on to beliefs that were kind of maybe contradictory or, or that seemed a little bit unusual. And I would say, but you said this and you said that. How, how do you square that? Or you, you said that America is great. The roads, American streets are paved in gold. Yet you've had a very difficult life. How do you reconcile that? So I would sort of semi-structured interviews and find their way into why they think so highly of the United States and then also how they, how they perceive their own life stories and, and, and how they combine the two, if you will. So that, that's kind of what I asked them. That sounds like those must have been just fascinating conversations to have. Yes, they were incredible conversations to have. Not all the time. Uh, sometimes they, you know, the, the ones that I end, ended up selecting uh, were really amazing. And I took away many learnings, many lessons from those conversations, including uh, something that I suspected to begin with, which is that, you know, just because this particular segment of the population struggles financially, it does not mean that um, they, you know, they are confused or unable to think at a high level or that they're not smart or that they're not reflective and think about things. Um, you know, even if they have a low level of education, which was the case with many of them, the depth of thought and the depth of um of uh, emotions was 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 impressive, as well as the depth of um, I mean the the degree to which they truly truly love the country and, and identify with the country and what that meant and especially if that was coupled with personal life stories of struggle you know and so you know things like you know where well, we love our country I come from a family of many generations of serving the military. I've lost relatives in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Uh, I think it was worth it. America is a great country. Now, those combinations, or I'm a migrant, I came to the United States, or I'm a child, a child of migrants, and, you know, this is why this country means so much to me. So these combinations became uh, very emotional and often led to very tender moments where, where uh, you know, within 30, 40 minutes, they had tears in their eyes, I had tears in my eyes, and uh, we just kept talking, you know. So it was, they were quite quite interesting conversation. Well, once you've gathered together all of these, you know, many fascinating conversations and interviews, what does your writing process look like? How do you go about moving from all of these recordings and, and notes I'm sure that you took to putting them together into a book? Yeah. So that's a great question also because it is, you know, I've written quite a few things over the years and none of it has been really as, focused on interviews as this. So it was a new process for me as well. Um, and the process was basically I coded, we coded, because I hired a very capable undergraduate. We coded uh, all the transcriptions uh, and with a software and then manually as well. We did it separately. She did it. I did it in tandem. And then we compared how we coded the material based on emergent themes. So we will identify emerging themes and then say, okay, this is a theme that shows up a lot. So we're going to code the transcripts based on this theme. And so we ended up having what we call coding nodes or coding themes and uh, organized maybe in some set 
categories and some subcategories around emerging things. And then what I did was to ultimately sit down and say, okay, so what, what is the story that emerges from these themes? You know, how can I weave them together? And clearly there is more than one way of doing so, but I believe that I kind of structured them in what I hope is a very, you know, what, what I hope is was already inherent in them, sort of a story that came out organically from the various themes, which were repeated over and over and over across respondents, right? So that was the goal is to see what are the emerging themes over and over and over and how do they weave together? How do they come together? How do they differ sometimes? Are there cross sections? Are there sub subsections of people who go one way or another within a certain category? And ultimately try to give voice to those. And my goal was not to interpret too much what they said. And the book was reviewed in a, in a number of places and, you know, um, and in the public sphere as well as, the, in, you know, academically, um, main, main media, but mainstream media, but academically as well. Well, there was one academic review that said, well, you didn't do a whole lot of interpreting. And, and, and that was on purpose. You know, I didn't, I really wanted to hear their voices and be a conduit for their voices. So I didn't really layer much of what they said with extra theoretical consideration. I mean, some, of course, but that was not my goal. So that's kind of how I did it. And then ultimately, when I saw what the road looked like, I organized the writing into chapters, into themes, that those are the chapters. And then I just kind of wrote them along as I saw, I saw them coming out. Yes. And, and so we can picture it. Where do you work? Where do you write? Do you write an office, home, kitchen table, desk, computer, notepad? What, what's your process look like in that way? Right. I write directly on a, you know, on the computer. I have all the notes. In this case, I had all the notes printed out, you know, all the transcripts printed out. I also have multiple streams for something like this, right? So I would have a file, a Word file where I would write, but then I would have a computer, another screen, a monitor, where I would have the text that I want to pull from and and then the physical stuff. And it's a desk, you know, I write at home or at the office. Mostly in this case, I wrote at home. Uh, it was a, oh, at the end of the day, you know, I had the introduction and the framing, what I would call the literature framing. Why bother doing this? What does the literature say about patriotism in America? What does it say about patriotism in sort of underprivileged groups. All of that was done maybe a year before. And then I had some, then the other writing, the background writing, the survey, the, the general social survey information, sort of the selection, the methods, all of that I wrote maybe after. And then that was maybe within a month's time, you know, two months. And then after that, I stopped teaching one year in April or early April. And I had three months when I sat down and I literally wrote out the, the, the draft of all the substantive chapters in about a four-month spell. That was eight-hour days every day for two or three months, you know. And my neck began to hurt towards the, uh, towards the end. But that's I, how I kind of did it. I just kind of just let it come out. So a slightly painful process at times, but one that clearly worked for you. Yes, it was intense. Actually, those, those three, four months when I, you know, I had all the, the information, we'd done all the coding, and I kind of had let it simmer and let it think, you know, let my subconscious come around and conscious mind come around. You know, you let it sit for a bit and you say, okay, I, I kind of see it. I kind of know what, what it's going to look like. I'm going to look like this, I'm like that, I'm like that. And then after that, you say, all right, I think I know the themes. And I think I know the sub-themes. I think I know how this, chap this chapter will be structured. I have the quotations under each sub-subheading. I, I, I know what the voices are. I just have to string it together. I just have to do it. And so those were, you know, I tend to divide my work in, as most of us do, I think, in chunks. And so I would just say, okay, this, this next three weeks is chapter three, as best as I can, you know. And the next, you know, once that was done, the next three weeks, it's that chapter. And just complete as much of it as I could. And, and I kept doing that until, <laughs> until I collapsed. No, until I was kind of done. Well, let's turn now to the book itself. Um, in your introduction, you answer the, the really important question of, of why this matters. Why should we try to understand the patriotism of America's least well-off? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's just what I would call part of the framing of the study. 
So why, why bother do this? And I identify similar reasons other than, of course, personal interest. But that's not, you can't justify a book, an academic book, just based on personal reasons, right? And interest. So I identified four or five reasons. The first one that I, that I thought was a driving force behind the book was that if you think about it, the social order uh, depends on, on this large, demographically large, segment of the population wanting to accepting the American social contract, right? Think of it in reverse. Uh, if they had, if they would question the order, the American social contract, if they would question the value of, of America because of their life experiences or, or whatnot, they could be, you know, far more demanding. I mean, they could have, we could have much stronger demands of much stronger social movements, a revolution, right? At the time that I was writing this, there were editorials written in the New York Times and Washington Post and many other places saying, why, why do Americas, why aren't Americas poor rising up? Why aren't they rebelling? Why aren't they asking more in the wake of the Great Recession? You know? And they weren't. They were not asking more for more. So one reason that they weren't asking for more in a way, or at least in a fundamental way, they weren't asking for more is that they love America. They still believe in the country, right? So that, so the social order depends on that. Uh, a, a second, a second reason was that if you look at, uh, uh, America's standing in the world, say, for example, its geopolitical policies, but also military presence everywhere in the world, a good chunk of people who serve in the military come from lower level socioeconomic status groups. And so this segment of the population does contribute significantly to the military. And it's hard to imagine them doing so if they didn't believe in, in the promise of America. I mean, they probably still would do it for other reasons, but certainly this is part of, it's a central, it's a central drive. Um, there are many other reasons too, including the fact that, um, you know, politicians have been able to leverage their patriotism uh, for political party purposes and election purposes. I think if you think back to, to the Trump's campaign, make America, America great again, clearly tapped into America's, Americans' patriotism. And we know that he got a significant portion of the votes of poor Americans, particularly a segment of within that, uh, white poor Americans. So, you know, something that, that politicians have been able to tap into in one way or another. I think Sanders, too, to some extent, uh, is a populist and that way speaks to the American dream or the American promise. Same thing for Elizabeth Warren. So it's something that is relevant for political purposes, for election purposes. Um, and so there's, there's a number of reasons for why this, this is important to understand, right? Well, and one of the points you highlight that I found especially interesting is that poor Americans are more patriotic than the poor in most other developed nations, even though objectively they're worse off than the poorest members of many of those countries. Can you explain how the situation of poor Americans compares to that of the poor in other countries? Yes, certainly. So you're correct in, in, in stating that that part of the argument, the initial argument or set up in the book is that Poor Americans are appear to be more patriotic than the poor in other advanced countries throughout the world, uh, particularly say Europe, um, but also other places. So there, you know, if you use proxy questions to measure patriotism as I define it, this sort of sense of greatness or superiority, even for the country, they do stand out. At the same time, they we know they they, they suffer more. Uh, in terms of economic and social ills than uh, the poor elsewhere. And that's measured by things like wages, education, food security, transfers, social transfers, you know, benefits, health care, as well as intergenerational mobility, the chances that, you know, uh, once kids can grow out of poverty and get out of poverty in, in the United States, Despite the belief that we have about the American dream, there is less intergenerational mobility among the poor and among other classes as well than in, than in other OECD you know, countries. 
America's poor also work longer hours than their counterparts in other countries. So in many ways, they have far less security, fewer benefits, far dimmer prospects than their counterparts elsewhere. And yet, at the same time, they are the most attached to the nation, to their nation and, and hold it in higher esteem. So it, in my view, that is a puzzle, right? How can that be? And what is the content of that, of that patriotism? You know, what is the reason for it? And how do they reconcile what seems to be a puzzle, right? Well, and in solving that puzzle, you identified three key themes in the way poor Americans think about their country. Um, so I'd like to sort of walk through them for our listeners. And, and the first of those three themes is that you talk about the, or well, the people you interviewed, right? Talk about the the country's promise of of hope. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. That was the first one that came out, one of three, as you said, and that had sort of a, you know, and it's going to sound familiar to some extent because we were familiar with that kind of rhetoric and discourse, but it does have particular manifestations in this segment of the population. Um, so for sure, for sure, no question asked uh, about this. Uh, the vast majority of all of the people that I really spoke with, except for three, which I selected because they were not patriotic, but the 60, 60 that I did speak to who were patriotic uh, certainly, they are absolutely convinced. They were absolutely convinced that America is sort of, you know, offers hope. And, and the question is, what kind of hope, right? And I identify kind of four themes there. One is hope for all of humanity, right? America is as the country that that, that holds the, the promise of deliverance for all of humanity, for all the things that throughout history, societies and governments and, you know, leaders have done that have been wrong, right? So that it stands for so these self-evident truths, and that, and so that's that's that, and that resonated with the respondents. So that was one thing, um, and that resonated with them in part because you you know one could say, well, why did it resonate with them? I mean, what does it do for them? Well, in fact, many of them said, look, I I have nothing left to lose, right? So. I have lost in many ways much in my life. They had many of them had, you know, we're talking about very economically challenged people here. We're not talking about working class people. We're talking about, you know, below that in terms of economic level. So people who are truly poor. And they would say things like, I, you know, I've lost everything. If I had a house, I lost it. If I had a family, I lost it. If I had this, you know, I am homeless. I am in a shelter. I am, I have a home, but I don't know where I'll be tomorrow. In given this, the promise of, of America as, as a hopeful place acquires all the more meaning, right? Because they can still hang on to that and for personal hope, for personal hope. So that gave them a lot of personal hope that things could change. There was a third, third sub-theme, and that was the theme of um, America being God's country. It's a rhetoric that we are all familiar with, I think, you know, manifest destiny and the like. And, and that meant for them that, you know, hey, you know, if I'm, I'm poor, I'd rather be poor in the United States because it is God's country. It is the country that um, they thought, many of them thought, God likes the most. And they would really say that, you know, God has a special place for, for America in its heart. And, of course, God likes everybody the same, but it has a special place in America's for America because of historical reasons and because of what America has done for God over time. So that's kind of the rhetoric they would say. So they would say, so not only am I in God's country, but God speaks to me directly. I am in conversation with God. And there was a lot of that, uh, particularly weaved with their personal stories of, well, I used to be maybe an alcoholic. I'm no longer. I found God. I'm walking with God right now. and next to God. God helps me. I'm in God's country. This is a great country. And then there was a fourth sub theme, which was that they thought that it's hopeful. It's a hopeful country because one can make mistakes and still recover. So quotes like, "Well, I heard that in Germany, if you if you steal something, they they cut your tongue off, and or you know if you do something wrong, they decapitate you in you know in Saudi Arabia." So. You know, here I still I've done some something wrong, and three months later I'm out, and I have I have hope. I have there's always a second chance in the United States, and so all of those things got weaved in together, or not, depending on the person, and 
came out with, you know, surrounded around this idea of hope. So that's one of the themes that I highlight in the book. Well, and before we move on to the second theme, uh, that actually leads to another question I wanted to ask that, you know, as you've said, the people you met were reflective and intelligent and well aware of their situations. But there were also moments where people offered uh, statements that were, you know, either misperceptions or, or outright untrue statements, uh, especially about life in other countries, such as the example you just mentioned, where, you know, in, in Germany, they'll cut your tongue out or that Japan is a communist country or the statement that poor Europeans receive fewer benefits than poor Americans. So how, how did you handle moments like that when, when factual inaccuracies came up in interviews? That's a good question. And you, you are pointing to some good examples where, you know, not only is Japan a communist country, there are only two democracies, one fellow told me, in the world, and those are the United States and Israel. Everybody else is socialist or something else, you know. Yeah, there were many moments like that misconceptions about other countries and misconceptions about the United States. And those were moments for me where, on the one hand, I could probe further into this mythical ideas that they had about the country, right? Because that's kind of the mythical aspect of things. But also, if appropriate, were moments when I would push them a little bit and say, this normally happened toward the end of the interviews. When I had established a personal, you know, report with them and there was trust and I would say, but listen, you know, I mean, you're saying these things, but it's not true. You're in Montana. You can, you can go hunting in, in Canada too. You know, you don't need the second amendment to be able to hunt and feed your family. Right. So it's not true that the United States is the only place where you can have a gun and hunt. Right. And so what would happen there is that's what I would do as I would try to push that you know, a little bit. And, and that's, that's the, those discussions are picked up in a chapter later in the book on reconciling, reconciling these things. How do they reconcile these things when confronted with a pretty direct statement to the contrary, right? And the truth is that they would do a variety of things. You know, they would reply things like, uh, well, I mean, I guess you might be right, but I've always been taught this. Or, well, I did go to Mexico once. I did see it. You're wrong. I, you know, it's a pretty destitute country. I was so happy to be back on home. So I'll never leave the country again. Right. And so that, in a way, helped me probe deeper into how their vision is constructed and maybe some of what we would consider maybe faulty structures around them. So, of course, yes. But, um, one lesson that I learned is, you know, we all have our myths and stories that we like to tell, right? So, and we don't necessarily think too hard about them. And this was the case for them too, you know? They, it's not like they think about this stuff all day long, all, you know, throughout their lives. It's just, I showed up and I asked them these questions. And yes, they're holding on to contradictory things or fantastical ideas. Well, that's kind of normal. I, I go, I don't know about you, but I have plenty of fantastical ideas that I hold on to that I'm not aware of unless somebody points them out, right? So and those are moments when I can open up and you can learn how I think from those moments. And that's how I kind of took advantage of those moments. Uh, that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from um, Catherine Newman, I think it is, who wrote that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that human beings are, are rife with internal contradictions and, and we believe mutually exclusive things all the time and that this bothers social scientists a lot more than it bothers anybody else. <laughs> totally. Absolutely correct. Okay, so the second theme that you wrote about um, depicts America as a land of, of milk and honey, the sort of streets paved with gold mythology. Can you tell me a bit more about that theme? Yes, yeah, so that one too had a number of sub-themes. I think four, four stand out. One was the notion that, and here again, you know, you, one could challenge this notion, but the notion that many had that, hey, listen, I'm poor, but they give me everything here in this country, right? I... You know, they, I have, you know, I'm wearing glasses that I didn't pay for. I, you know, I get help. And sometimes they will conflate government services with, say, Salvation Army services, right? Another same thing. But somehow for them, it was like, well, I'm helped by the country. Society helps me. So they felt supported, even though one could argue that they are supported less than elsewhere. But that's what they felt. 
Another another theme was the sense that they 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 um, are living in a in a country where you know there is abundant wealth, right? There's wealth everywhere now, and so that feels good. It's available in principle to them. It must be that this country is great if there's all this wealth. We're doing we're doing such great things and we're creating such value in the world. So what a fantastic country to be in. Why would I want to be anywhere else? You know, therefore, as to the question of, yes, but you're not partake, partaking of that wealth, they would say, well, I mean, I am some, right? They give me things. Plus, um, you know, it, to the extent that I'm not getting some things, it's my fault. It, so it's not the fault of the country that I'm not able to partake in these things. And oddly enough, that answer came especially from African American males and females in Alabama of a certain age, of an older age, precisely perhaps the group that has the stronger could make the strongest claim of having been discriminated against all their lives. You know, they grew up in the segregated South. I mean it's not they have had a terrible life, many of them had in terms of discrimination. They were the ones who were actually the most prone to say, no, 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 no. I've been taught that my fate is in my hands. It's in no one's hands, and I'm responsible for this. So really moving statements of, of autonomy and, and maybe the delusion to some extent, but nonetheless, there it was. So there was a lot of that, and um, so a lot of forgiveness, if you will, or, or, or you know, not, not worrying too much if, if they're not able to partake in it. It still is a fantastic, fantastically wealthy country. And there was also something that I didn't expect, uh, considerable uh, mentions of the country's beauty, uh, physical beauty, grandness. You know, this is a, an amazingly beautiful, big country. Uh, in a sense, ultimately, that some of them were quite content with their lives. That in the end, you know, I have it pretty good, all things considered. I've struggled, but I'm struggling. But this is a great country. It's a beautiful country. Open sky, right? Big mountains, you know. And so, this is if I'm going to be poor, this is the place to be poor in. And that was um, that was quite interesting, you know. I mean, uh, the 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 quote, "The land of milk and honey," I think came from an African American man that had marched with Martin Luther King, you know, in uh, Alabama. Uh, and he, you know, it came from people like that, and. It was quite something, right, to hear from them, right? Not from some wealthy, white, upper-middle-class male, but from them, right? So there's something there that still captures their imagination. Well, I, yeah, I think you really do document sort of the, the ubiquity of this discourse of, of I'm in control of my own destiny, and I'm an autonomous individual. I'm responsible for my own choices. My fate, good or bad, is made by me alone. And sort of how that can be sort of difficult to see from the outside, but also how empowering that clearly is in, in certain ways to still be the master of your own destiny, even if it's, you know, as the ship is sinking, to mix my metaphors. Yes, and, and I know you kind of have worked in that area, and I think it's it's. I mean, I was myself. I'm speaking personally, you know, very moved by that, and almost uh, unsure how to feel about it, right? Because on the one hand, you just want to embrace them and say, no, no, you know, you've had a terribly difficult life. It is not your fault, you know. Uh, so you want to, there's almost a dramatic sense that I have felt often, you know, um, without getting into too many details, but no, oh, these people, prostitution, drug addiction, living in the street, you know, no, no, it's not your fault. They were beaten up by their parents when they were six, they left home at eight. I mean, of course you didn't make it, but it's not, your, it's not in your hands, right? I mean, and so you want to, there's a tragic, tragic quality to it. And yet their, their sense that they can still control it makes it even more tragic. Right, because in a way, that's great that they feel that way because it certainly hopes, gives them hope and does create hope, and some will get out of the situation they're in as a result, but some will not. And so there's also another layer of um, of dramatic quality to it where you want to say, don't feel that way, and at the same time, do feel that way, right? And 
But then you say, maybe you shouldn't, because if you do feel that way, then it just perpetuates the situation you're in, because you're not going to get out anywhere from the situation you're in, and nothing is really going to change. You're just going to be delusional, right? And but 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 not able to ask for more because of what you just said. So it's a complicated thing, and, and it was very very beautiful in a way, if you can get my what I'm trying to get at. Very very humbling and, and very beautiful, and, and very you know at the same time very tragic. Yeah, I I really like how you talk about that, and and it also connects back to what you mentioned earlier that while you're writing the book, there are these editorials about why. It, why no uprising, right? Where's the sort of, you know, the new American revolution. And, and I think what you found really speaks to that, um, you know, is in part an answer to that question, but an answer that isn't sort of glib or dismissive about the perspectives of Americans in these difficult situations, but that really tries to capture sort of the, the full humanity of, um, you know, the way they understand themselves and, and the world around them. Mm-hmm. Right. And another, another slightly more academic way of putting it would be to say that maybe the state has failed them, but not the nation, right? That the nation still, the idea of the nation still speaks to them, and then society or the state has failed them. And they're hanging on to the idea of the nation, the promise of the nation, right? And that gives them ultimately a significant amount of dignity. Yeah. And that still works for them. And so that's incredible, really. Yes, definitely. I, I like that way of, of framing it, right? That the state may have failed, but the nation has not. Right. Um, and, and that also, you know, connects to that third sort of theme that you identified that, that the people you met with talked about America as a place of, of freedom um, in both physical ways and, and also about mental freedoms. I put that as the third theme in the order of the chapters of the themes, but in fact, it was the first thing that I talked about. Almost inevitably, it was freedom. So the first thing, first associations, first reasons they would give, first images was freedom. So it could have been a whole book in, in and of itself, but it did precisely take on the dimensions of physical freedom, the sense that they can move around, you know, there's uh, a man named Marshall, I think I give, they're all fake names, of course, uh, but Marshall in Montana, young man, in the li- I've met him in the library, who tells me that he sleeps in the fields in the winter to in Montana with a thick sleeping bag. And, you know, I said, but, but why? Well, I'm taking a sabbatical from life. <laughs> And I said, okay. And he said, yeah, I love being out there. And, and actually, he would say things like, in another country, I'd be rounded up and put in a home, forced to be in a shelter or sent somewhere. Whereas here, I can just be completely free and open. And uh, I mean, nobody bothers me for it. And I was pretty stunned by that. He also had a partner who was who identified as Irish Native American uh, woman who also followed him around. And so the whole combination of the, the two of them was kind of interesting. And yeah, so there was this physical, mental freedom. I can think what I want. I can say pretty much all I want and nobody bugs me for it. That was definitely there. There was a layer of that that connected pretty strongly to guns and being able to hunt. So, you know, we associate sort of maybe some right-wing rhetoric with, you know, conservative rhetoric with gun ownership and we think of it as self-defense or Second Amendment revolution. But for them, that's not, that wasn't necessarily the reason for the love of guns. The reason was hunting and being able to feed their families, either in the past or in the present. So this freedom to do that was interesting. There was another layer to it, which was the notion that this freedom did not just come about on its own, but it was fought for, right? And the generations of people had fought for this freedom. And many of them, as I said, had relatives or themselves had served in the military, and so the, and had lost people in the mil, in, in the service, right? And so there was a clear, direct sense that what they cherished, someone had lost their lives for. Someone close to them had fought had fought for this. 
And so it meant all sorts of things to them. There were interesting differences, however, in understanding exactly what that stuff meant. And I think the biggest difference that I talk in the book, I probably should talk more of about, is the sort of the Southern Confederate kind of rhetoric a little bit and the more mon- mon- libertarianism from Montana. So, so what they meant by freedom were rather different things, right? In the South, it was more, well, we have our values, we have our traditions, we like to do things in a certain way, blah, 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 blah. In Montana, it was more about, you know, what you would expect, sort of out in the field, there's no government bothering me. I can, you know, very individualistic, libertarian kind of thing. So all of those things were present in what they talked about and it's clearly very much at the center of what they thought America stands for. And even if challenged, and I would say to them, but you know, you can't have the same exact freedoms in Germany or Sweden or Australia, right? The, the idea was maybe, but that's not what the social contract is about. Whereas here, that is what the social contract is about. And to me, that makes all the difference. So that's kind of how they framed it. And again, uh, I was maybe surprised by the extent to which they were able to articulate that sort of historical understanding of the founding of the country and so on. Right. And, and I think it's interesting that despite the the many differences between the two places that you conducted your interviews and, and maybe sort of the political underpinnings um, or the ideological underpinnings that nevertheless you, you ended up with so many shared themes um, ac- across people in, in very dif- disparate places and in, in very different situations. There were still these sort of three key themes that echo through the, the interviews that you conducted. Mm-hmm. Yes, they certainly did in amazing ways. Of course, as I said, uh, the specifics sometimes change quite a bit. You know, there were plenty of racist white people that I spoke with in the South. Uh, they would, when they talk about freedom, they would mean one thing. And then next to them, an hour later, maybe or five, hour, five days later, I'm talking to an African-American man. And what that man means by freedom is different. But nonetheless, there are still points of, of con- contact whereby they of correspondence, right? These notions of self-determination and this this notion that the country is set up in a certain way and, and an explicit recognition of that. So, yes, absolutely. And it was interesting, you know, you're in Alabama and rural Alabama, they're saying these things and then you go to Montana and use very similar propensities and tendencies. First things, you know, out of their mouths, well, freedom, 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 for sure. Tattoos, I mean, some of these people had tattoos, you know, eagles tattooed on their calves or on their backs and, you know, just amazing stuff, right? Um, so, yeah, for sure, very, very relevant and prominent, you know. Ultimately, I think it, it, became, it became clear to me that that, is, that, it, that, that, that stuff is a, is a true part of their constitution in a way that is not in, other, in many other countries. I don't think I would encounter the same propensity in other countries, in some, many other countries where their self, their sense of self is defined by this patriotic understanding, right? They may, it may be much more cultural or, or, or local or family oriented or religiously oriented, not so civically, you know, nationally, civically oriented as it is in the United States. And I explore there in the book a little bit as to why that might be the case and why this is so prominent here and not in other places. But, you know, that's kind of what the book is about. Right. And, and I really appreciate that at the closing of the book, you include an epilogue that features some dissenting voices of poor Americans who are who are not patriotic and who don't espouse the views that you heard most often. So what were their perspectives? Oh, <laughs> those guys were interesting. Uh, uh, they were, you know, they were much more cynical um, of the country. They were much more suspicious of its history. They equated patriotism maybe with some sort of conspiracy theory sometimes or with the one person told me, well, uh, when I think of the flag, I think of a bunch of fret boys, preppy fret boys, you know. Uh, in fact, you know, I'm, we, I was part of a punk band and we, we in fact, took the flag and, this, you know, we, we disrespected the flag. That was our point, you know, countercurrent. 
you know, so a sense that patriotism is a conservative thing, is a sort of a, a top-down kind of thing. It's a controlling thing. It's a it's a mental control thing, you know. So the Pledge of Allegiance, all these things are designed to control, you know, people. I have had people have called me up after the book was out, you know. I mean, I've left voicemails on my phone and emails from people from various parts of the country saying, you know, precisely this stuff. Like, I read your book. I can only tell you one thing. All your respondents, all the 60 people you spoke with, they're just completely brainwashed. Uh, I, you know, I served in the military. I know, you know, and I tell you what, after 30 years, I figured it all out. You know, we got screwed. We're getting screwed. These people just are not thinking. They just kind of drank the Kool-Aid, and that's that, you know. So that's what I heard from the skeptics, right, that this is a sort of like a hoax or a, or, or they, you're taught at such a young age to do this. You don't, you no longer, you no longer question it or see it with a perspective. But I mean, maybe. But when I was talking to, I mean, one person, a mother with brain cancer who didn't expect to live that long, and she insisted that for as long as she's alive, she's going to read, you know, she's going to recite the Pledge of Allegiance with her kids at night, and she's going to, you know, tell them about American history. I mean, I don't know. You know, I think they're thinking about things, you know, on to the last moment. So but that, that was the cynicism is, is these people just aren't able to see, you know, they're just brainwashed. And, you know, so that's, that's kind of what came out of the, those conversations. And I guess it's another book waiting to be written, right? Definitely. Well, well, thank you for giving our listeners such a full sense of, of your book, its arguments, and of uh, reflecting the perspectives of the people that you spoke with. Um, now, now I'd like to ask, what was the hardest part of writing this book? Good question. I think there were two hard parts. One was the actual travel and time spent at these places because I was away, right? I have a family, so I didn't spend too, too long, but I mean, you know, uh, being out there and waiting and days go by and you're talking to these people, it's not easy. It's, it's interesting, but it's not easy. And in fact, having this sort of, another, I think about it, this sort of, I don't want to say hypocritical, but definitely contradictory experience whereby maybe in the day I'm having these conversations and these places, homeless shelters for women or, you know, whatever. And then I go back to my four-star hotel and have a nice beer and a nice dinner, right? So that, that was not, uh, that made me think a lot uh, about my my relationship to, to the problem and to the world, right? Um, you know, so literally like changed part of the city where I would go to retreat at night and have my normal existence normal for me. And then kind of going back and forth was not easy. And the other part, I think it was just, you know, the actual writing, as I mentioned to you, when I decided to finally, when I finally put it all together, that process of going from an abstract idea to actually piece by piece writing it is, for me, it's not the easiest, you know, it's just a kind of chiseling away, you know, and just laying brick by brick what you think it's going to look like, you know, and just doing it is, uh, it's not easy. But, um, yeah, so that, I would say that that was, it was a, other things. I, as I mentioned, I had a very a great assistant, an undergraduate at Bates, who was just fantastic, and she did a lot of the really hard work, such as transcribing the stuff and you know, some of the coding. And so, at least that part I didn't have to do directly. At least some of it. So, but those were the two things I think that were quite hard, you know. And so, what was your favorite part of writing the book? Uh, meeting these people, you know, for sure. Uh, meeting these people it was great. Uh, establishing connections with them was absolutely great. I learned a ton. Uh, so the human dimension for me was was incredibly valuable, and uh, the connection and the what they taught me and what I understood for sure was amazing. Uh, the insights into their, as you said, their humanity, the the you know the the human condition, the contradictions, the, the hopes. So that tender spot, which made it feel incredible. And then I have to say, uh, you know, the book did get some, you know, some attention in the media. So a fun part has been also to go and give talks and, you know, do interviews such as this one. 
and having a chance to have it out there and for people to, you know, talk about it as an idea. And then, of course, you know, people take it for what it is. I mean, I had an interview with, you know, salon.com. And, I mean, there were, you know, hundreds of comments. And, you know, it became interesting to see what, what lives this kind of stuff can get can have, you know. I'm sure you've had a similar experiences where you say something or write something and then people just go with it and something else comes out of that, you know, another discussion or, or whatnot. So that's, that's been kind of interesting to see how people took it. A lot of people took it to be a, a book about Trump and Trump supporters. It is not, you know, yeah, it is not that. Um, it's not about politics, really. It's about the nation. So, but it's been interesting to see how that happened. So some conservative think tanks that asked me to go talk to them and I do that and they think, aha, see, okay, well, right, this tells us that we're, you know, we're right. You know, America's great and even these people see it. So it's kind of interesting to see the aftermath of that, right? How people interpret it and spin it the way they want to spin it. So learning experience, right? For me. Right. Well, well, as you say it, right, to have your argument sort of grow and move to places you might not have taken it or, or be used in ways you might not have intended it to be used, I think is always a, I mean, challenging, but also sort of illuminating part of the, the process. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to ask um, if there's a lot of, there's a lot of food for thought in the book, I think, both from a sort of scholarly perspective, but just sort of, as you said, thinking about what our country is like, how people see it. And, you know, as you sort of mentioned, sitting in your hotel room, reflecting on, you know, what is my part in all of this, right? What, what do we do with this information that you've gathered? Um, and, and I wondered if readers only take one thing from your book, um, what would you want it to be? I think it would have to be the ambiguity that comes out of it. This sort of double-sidedness to things, you know, this sort of, um, on the one hand, the, the hope that one senses, and on the other hand, the possibility that this hope is is maybe it's what prevents them from really asking for change, right? And so this, there's so many so many of these tensions, and I think in what I heard and I describe in the book, is sort of that that ambiguity, that tension between between what seems great and what might be in fact the thing that is not so great is the thing that's so tragic at the same time and, and the ability of human beings to hold on to these sort of stories, right? These narratives that are semi-conscious level and, and how our minds work that way. To me, that's, you know, the ability to juggle in our heads with these multiple multiplicity of concepts that we're not quite aware of. Right. And we kind of entertain them. And I think, it's humbling to see that, right? And to to know that we all do that. And at a high, high level, that to me is is a key takeaway, which I don't know that I, I, I actually do a good job at <laughs> articulating in the book. But afterwards, I thought, man, I should have really, like, should have really pushed on that in the book, right? It's this, this question of the tent, the, the humanness of it, right? The humanity of it is, is really comes out. And I just... If I could rewrite it, I probably have another chapter on that, right? Well, speaking of the next chapter, um, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today, and I, I know our listeners will too. But before I let you go, um, what do you think your next project will be? Uh, well, I have. Well, thank you first of all for all the great questions and and thoughts and all that. Um, I, I've just finished a, a project on populism in Europe and on. Um, uh, right-wing movements in Sweden, in the Netherlands, and in France, and uh, the rhetoric, but uh, the rhetoric about, on the one hand, a very right-wing and anti-immigration and all that, but at the same time, several of these of these movements and parties have adopted very progressive rhetorics on women's rights, on gay and lesbian rights, on welfare, on religious freedom, and it's a contradictory mix, if you will, at least rhetorically, you don't politically those things have not mixed very well. And so what I've been spending a bit of time on has been that. Uh the populism, of course, and also again the contradictory trend what would seem to be contradictory trends and getting at the bottom of that of those contradictory trends. So that's what I've been working on. I have a paper coming out on that. Uh and also I'm working always on the European Union and uh 
nationalism and national identity, Brexit, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I'm dabbling in a couple of different kind of research streams. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. I will look forward to uh, reading reading more about both of those projects uh, as we move into the future. Um, so thank you again for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was a, it was a great conversation. Thank you very much.